Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. A lot of been a lot of has been made about the walking away from the church that has happened, and you can find this in the general um, religious survey that has happened in North America recently. There was a piece about the UK, and less than fifty percent of um, of Brits identifying as Christian, or, and far far fewer go to church. And they've had the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Now, this isn't really, as the video I made about Tom Holland and his observations, this isn't really the rise of professed atheism. Um, it's much more the rise of the spiritual but not religious. There's a skepticism whether church as institution is productive and meaningful. And that skepticism is played out in people's decisions to not attend church, not support church, not identify with church, not participate in church. Now, it's not just church that has suffered from this. Um, there's a skepticism about many inherited institutions. I think some of this comes to us down from the Enlightenment, but there have there've been versions of this throughout history. In some ways, there's some parallelism between the Enlightenment deism and what I've talked about with Ezekiel Calvin's book, The Religion of Israel, The Metadivine Realm. Being is assumed to be impersonal. Ancients imagined a metadivine realm with gods that you could or should relate to, but for the most part, there's a metadivine realm above them, which is impersonal. There are rules to follow, and all of the gods within that metadivine realm are subject to those rules. The Enlightenment sort of cut out God as a person and replaced it with God as a system. Um, the gods, demons, and angels are all sort of cut out, and there's just sort of an impersonal system that has rules of nature and all sorts of other things. And there's no point to actually relating to gods or God at church because they don't answer prayer, they don't listen. This has been an idea that has been around for a long time, but human beings in practice don't tend to live that way. Uh, for years now, I've looked at the woman I call Verizon Lisa, in the LG Lucid Verizon commercial where she's walking outside of a Verizon store and she says the universe is telling me to buy a new smartphone. And so she has this little dialogue with the universe. Now I find in regular people all over the place that this is by and large true. People who don't go to church are still having conversations with universe or being or this or that and they have personal relationships with these things. Even though, on the other hand, if you, well, in polite company in public, they would sort of demur to sort of the deist enlightenment in um, impersonal view. Now, within scripture, of course, there's a long question about the hiddenness of God. When the Bible opens, the man and the woman are very much living in communion with God in the garden. And due to their rebellion, they are chased out of the garden and prevented from entering in. In our men's Bible study, um, as the men were reading through Genesis 4, they noted too that, well, Cain and Abel seem to be in communion with God. And after Cain kills Abel, he's sent away from God's presence. And this gives him a great deal of fear and anxiety. 
um, God seems to show up episodically throughout the story of Israel. The psalmists and the prophets sometimes lament the absence of God. Oh Lord, why don't you come? Why don't you come when we need you? Why don't you rescue us? Why are you so far off from me? Um, there is certainly God's mediated presence through creation, but so often we seek God's immediate presence through interventions as, well, was written about in the former and to a degree latter prophets. But many have noted that throughout the history of the Bible, God seems to get, at least in the Old Testament, further and further and further away from Israel until at some point he just seems to stop talking entirely. I've been reading Paul Johnson's A History of the Jews. It's, a, it's really quite an interesting book. He notes that the transformation of Judaism into the first religion of the book took two centuries before 400 BC. Now, Tom Holland would, of course, quibble with Paul Johnson's assertion that Judaism that early is a religion. Our category of religion, as we experience it, very much comes in the modern period. Before 400 BC, there's no hint of a canon. By 200 BC, it was there. Of course, the canon was not yet complete and final, but it was beginning to solidify fast. This had several consequences. In the first place, additions were discouraged. Prophecy and the prophets fell into disrepute. There's a reference in the first book of Maccabees to the day when the prophets ceased to appear. Those who tried to prophesy were dismissed as false. When Simon Maccabeus was made leader, his term in office was declared to be indefinite until a true prophet shall appear. They're very much sort of living in the time where Samuel or Moses or one of these Old Testament prophets will appear and lead the people. Even though, of course, Samuel is a judge, which is sort of a king slash prophet. And once the kings took over, the prophets were sort of separate. And then you had sort of this proto-separation of church and state, as it were. The book of Zechariah has a tirade against the prophets. If a man continues to prophesy his parents, his own father and mother will say to him, You shall lie no longer, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, that's in a book of prophecy, and it seems that prophets were best sort of realized in hindsight. But again, after the book of Malachi, things sort of grow silent. There certainly are other books that are read and written, but they're not given the same status as canon. Now, what we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, I think, is a call to um, a call to the people that a time of prophecy had reemerged. You see that in sort of the kingdom motif of the genealogy that we looked at last week. We saw Abraham to King David, King David to the exile, and then the exile to the birth of Christ. Matthew is very much setting up Jesus in that line as a new outbreaking. Abraham was a new turn in the story from, the, from all of the bloodshed of the, of the flood and then the calamity of the Tower of Babel. Abraham was a new move forward. David was a messianic figure who saved his people, but the kingdom fell into decay and then finally exile. And now here, Jesus comes and there'll be a new movement in the story once again. That new movement in many ways is inaugurated by John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem, all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now this is very much an apocalyptic, a revelatory event. John appears and his message, his clothing, his demeanor, his perspective, his actions are all intended in some ways to have the prophet stride right out of antiquity, right into the present time. Now again, as I think Paul Johnson rightly noted, this would be felt as problematic for many of the people around. And we're going to talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this process. But Matthew is very much intending to display this as God pulling back the veil and striding out of the book and right there into the lives of the people in real time and real space through John the Baptist as a prophetic figure in the school very much of Elijah. You have the kingdom theme that we saw in the genealogy. God's king is returning to his people, and John's garments are a reenactment of Elijah and Israel's prophets. You very much see, once again, the wilderness motif. Now, wilderness, in terms of the symbolic world of the Bible, is sort of dry sea. It's a place that you can't live, and it's a place of wild animals and danger and chaos. But it's often out of the wilderness that God moves into the people's lives. And of course, God takes them out of watery Egypt and into the dry wilderness and sustains them in the desert wandering and meets them at Sinai. Israel is born out of slavery into wilderness where God himself led her. Confession is an interruption in mindless sinning waking up to the realities of danger and opportunity. And John strides in there and basically says, pay attention, the time has come. God is coming into your midst and you had better be ready because when God comes, things change. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Why is he so Well, why does he look at the Pharisees and Sadducees in this way? Well, first of all, those are two of the main rival groups and rival approaches to the situation that Israel found herself here in here at the end of the the reign of Herod the Great and the time after Herod had died. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are not characters in the old story. You don't find them in the Old Testament. They are products of Israel wrestling with the pervasive and powerful culture of the Eastern Roman Empire, which still in many ways continued to have the culture of the ancient Greek world. They are born out of the titanic intertestamental struggles between the larger Greek imperial culture and the resistant Hebrew culture. 
Pharisees and Sadducees were rival in terms of how the Jews should relate to the broader world around them. This tension is in some ways assimilate versus resist, and that goes all the way back to ancient Israel. What you saw in the northern kingdom, where Elijah and Ahab wrangled, was a question, how much assimilation will the ten northern tribes do to the surrounding culture? And you see that in Samaria with the temple to Tyrian Baal and, well, basically what happens to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is lost and all of their distinctiveness is sort of evaporated into the wild. Now, the southern kingdom also wrestled with this and they vacillated. You might remember Ahaz from a couple of weeks ago who, in order to challenge the armies of Syria and the northern kingdom appealed to Assyria and took their model of worship and brought it to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Paul Johnson talks about this in terms of the tensions that all of the people in the Galilee and Judea during Jesus' times had to wrestle with. Between the isolationists on the one hand and the Hellenizers on the other was a broad group of pious Jews in the tradition of Josiah, Ezekiel, and Ezra. Many of them did not object to Greek rule in principle any more than they objected to the Persians, since they tend to accept Jeremiah's arguments that religion and piety flourished more when pagans had to conduct the corrupting business of government. They were quite willing to pay the conqueror's taxes provided they were left to practice their religion in peace. Such a policy was later explicitly advocated by the Pharisees who sprang from this tradition. Up to a point, pious Jews were willing to learn from the Greeks and absorbed a great many more Hellenistic ideas than they were prepared to admit. They had always been rationalizing the rationalizing element in Mosaic legalism and theology, and this was also unconsciously reinforced by Greek rationalism. This is how the Pharisees created the oral law, which was essentially rationalistic to apply the archaic Mosaic law to the actual world of their day and today, in many ways. It is significant that their enemies, the Sadducees, who struck rigidly, who stuck rigidly to the written law and would admit to no casuistry, said that the logic of the Pharisees would lead them to more respect for the book of Homer, by which they meant Greek literature, than the Holy Scriptures. You can see already sort of the way this is shaping out. Now, this doesn't map perfectly onto... Oh, I've got a phone call. I think it's an adjuster. Now, the Sadducees have a different way of going about this. And again, you can't really map them easily onto, let's say, the, the warring factions of our, of our current religious conflicts. Um, they, the Sadducees didn't want to use an oral tradition. The Pharisees seemed to be much more popular preachers and popular movements emphasizing an oral tradition that sort of keeps the Mosaic Code up to date. The Sadducees very much preferred the written, fixed, limited law and um, imagined, but they also in, in many ways were much closer to the aristocracy and much closer to the Greeks. By contrast, the temple priest, dominated by the, by the Sadducees, or descendants of Zadok, the great high priest from Davidic times, insisted that all law must be written and unchanged. They had their own additional text called the Book of Decrees, which laid down a system of punishment. Who were to be stoned, who burned, who beheaded, who strangled. 
This was written and sacred. They would not admit that oral teaching could subject, um, could subject the law to a process of creative development. With their rigid adherence to the Mosaic inheritance, their concept of temple as the sole source and center of Jewish government and their own hereditary position in its functions, the Sadducees were natural allies of the new Hasmonean high priests, even though the latter had no strict title for this position by descent. And you can see why the Sadducees will disappear after the destruction of the temple because their focus is on the temple, whereas the Pharisees will become the tradition that will really um, become rabbinic Judaism, which is something of which you see today. You see that John is not aligning with either of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John is declaring that his apocalyptic absolutism cannot be co-opted either by the oral tradition culture war waged by the Pharisees nor the Greek accommodationist biblicism of the Sadducees. There is a universalizing motif within John's message, too, that Israel, Israelite particularism can't save them either. Events are underway that will completely rewrite, rewrite the map of history, and John is there to announce its inauguration. And that just becomes a historical fact. Events were underway that would completely re rewrite the history of religion and the history of the world, and the gospel writers see John as announcing its inauguration. People need to wake up. Pay attention and prepare themselves for the opportunity and the calamity that is coming. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Egyptian motifs are strong here, the Exodus motif. Egypt was a place of water. Egypt tried to drown the sons of Israel in the water. Moses was rescued by an ark in the Nile and brought to the palace of Egypt. Israel's God is about to appear again. This is Apocalypse. John is not as, John is not as important as the one who is to come, John declares. He will baptize. Now, again, I want to remind us that baptism is a water ordeal. It's a ceremonial drowning. It's a test given to God. You see these ordeals in the book of Daniel. The fiery furnace is an ordeal. Can God save? Will the people who go into the furnace be miraculously rescued by God and their position vindicated? Yes. Um, how, about the, how about the lion's den? Daniel is thrown there and the lions don't touch him. His enemies are thrown there and they are devoured. This is a similar water ordeal. You go under the water and if you come out, well, then it is God speaking that you are being vindicated. It's a ceremonial water ordeal. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit, meaning, well, you read about the Holy Spirit in Joel, in Isaiah, and the other prophets. He will baptize with fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, read again the book of Exodus. I am a consuming fire. You see fire on top of Sinai. You see fire in the burning bush. Every sacrifice is a reenactment of the burning bush and of Sinai where God is a consuming fire and the animal goes into the fire in place of the man and is consumed. 
John is talking about the harvest of Israel, more prophetic themes, wheat from chaff. There's always this strong element of faithful Israel versus unfaithful Israel, and they're all mixed up. And God is going to separate faithful from unfaithful. The faithful will be rewarded, go into a storehouse. The unfaithful will be burned up, again the fire motif, burned up with the fire of God. Chaff will be consumed by God's apocalyptic fire. Now, for many of us, what kind of images do we have when we hear about this, this imagined apocalypse? Um, John Brown, in many ways, was sort of imagined to be a John the Baptist figure. He's there to declare that everything is about to change. The world is about to become undone. And God is going to stride into history. The wobbly, he's going to tear out of the system, and God will finally set the world right, and everyone is waiting with bated breath to see someone is coming. If John is volume set up at seven, certainly the next one will be absolutely apocalyptic. And then something happens that surprises John. Then Jesus came from Galilee. From Galilee? Why would Jesus come from Galilee? Shouldn't he be coming from Bethlehem to the Jordan to be baptized by John? Why would Jesus be baptized by John? Since Jesus is greater, shouldn't the greater baptize the lesser? But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So, of course, John consented. John understands submission, and he submits to the one who is greater. Jesus comes from the mishmashed remnants of the northern kingdom that just sort of evaporated as such. Many of just remnants um, persisted from those tribes, even though he's David's son. He sort of pulls Israel together. John expects next level, next level fire and brimstone. Do to them what was done to Sodom and Gomorrah. John is ready to submit, but the form of submission is surprising. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on it. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, this is shocking. We might be expecting fire from heaven like onto the altar at Carmel with Elijah. We might be expecting fire on the mountain with Sinai for God to come down as a consuming fire to burn up the Romans and burn up the wobbly Jews and finally bring justice and order and righteousness to the people of God by fire and fear. John expects Jesus to be the fire and the water or at least to bring it. Jesus instead submits to this ordeal and is found and declared righteous. He's submerged into the water, and out of Egypt, God calls his son. The Holy Spirit comes upon him as a dove, not fire on the mountain. The dove, if you remember, was the hopeful sign that Noah sends out from the ark to see whether or not God will replenish the earth after the deluge of the flood. 
Heaven speaks. The skies do open. God does now appear. God does now speak not just to one, but God speaks to all, announcing this is his son. This is the prince. This is the heir. This is the one you're to be waiting for. God's son, the prince, has finally arrived. Follow him. You follow because you don't know what you need, where to go, or how to get there. And this is Jesus' inauguration of his ministry. This is Apocalypse. Now we wonder, well, is there a personal God who can speak? Or is it just all impersonality and subpersons who are making noises here or there that may or may not be trusted? The tension remains. God has spoken. God's voice is mediated through creation, through general revelation. Yeah, we get that. Will we listen? That's always been the hard part. Will we understand and get it right? That's always our struggle. The stakes are high. Jesus surprises by bearing judgment. He didn't bring the fire. He didn't bring the water. He didn't massacre the wobbly Israelites. Instead, he bears judgment, not in a way that John anticipates. Judgment always comes. It does. Sometimes it's mediated. Sometimes it's it's in the immediate form. But this comes to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is that thing that differentiates the good cop from the corrupt cop. Righteousness is the thing inside of us that moves us to do the right thing. Punishing, killing, destroying is a relatively easy way to remake the world almost always at the expense of the blood of our enemies. The transformation of sinners, however, is a far harder task. And this is exactly what Jesus sets out to do. Not simply to kill or push away or exile the enemy, but to woo the enemy, to transform the enemy, to bring the enemy in through love. Our hearts are tougher than our skins. Jesus comes to change our hearts, the corrupt cop, to the good cop. He comes not only to bring righteousness, but to bring righteousness not upon us, but through us. Amen.